Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Jordan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. If you don't mind, give our audience an overview of the company. Sure. So Sky Harbor is a high-grade uranium exploration and early-stage development company. All of our projects are in northern Saskatchewan in what's called the Athabasca Basin. It's the highest-grade depository of uranium in the world. Uh, notable companies that operate there like Cameco, like NextGen Fission, which just in recent years have made significant new high-grade discoveries. They've created a lot of value for their shareholders. And then a handful of, of junior companies, exploration companies, Sky Harbor included. It's an area of the world, a jurisdiction that's ranked in the top five consistently as top mining jurisdictions to operate in, good infrastructure, lots of exploration and discovery potential. So it's a great place to be. We've spent the last five or six years now building a project portfolio consisting of projects that range from earlier stage, more grassroots exploration projects to more advanced stage exploration projects. We have Two projects in particular, Falcon Point, which does host an NI-43-101 inferred uranium resource, and our flagship project, the Moore Uranium Project, which is really the crown jewel for the company. There's a small high-grade zone of uranium mineralization at what's called the Maverick Zone. We found high-grade uranium at what's called the unconformity pods of uranium along strike at about 260, 270 meters vertical depth, which is actually relatively shallow for Athabasca Basin deposits. We just started a summer drill program, so that's where you're going to see lots of the news flow coming out over the next several months, minimum 3,000 meters of drilling. And what's exciting about this drill program that's just started is it's really our first shot at trying to make a new discovery on that project in what's called the basement rock. So underneath the sandstone covers the more shallow areas. There's the basement rocks, which is where some of the highest grade and, and most recent discoveries like NextGen, like Fission, like Griff, the Griffin deposit at Denison's Wheeler project have been made. So we now have the targets in the basement rock, and we're going to be drill testing those targets, looking to find a bit deeper but higher grade and larger deposits at depth. We've spoken about Azincourt Energy on this program before. Tell us about your partnership with them. Yeah, so absolutely. So Azincourt's one of two option partners we have. We, in conjunction with our main strategy of finding new high-grade deposits, uranium deposits in the Athabasca Basin, we do employ as a secondary strategy prospect generation. So we have projects that we will basically incubate, if you will, and advance them to a stage where a larger company or another partner will come in and earn in, option in on the project. So we've done two such deals in the last year and a half, one of which with Azincourt, they are going to be planning to drill what's called the East Preston Project. This is over by Fission and Nexion on the west side of the basin. You saw some recent news on that. So they're planning for a drill program later this year, early next year, to explore and drill test targets that they found on that property. The terms of that deal, it's essentially a three-year deal. They have to spend $2.5 million, so fund $2.5 million worth of exploration over those three years, pay a $1 million in cash payments, and they've issued some shares. We have another option agreement with a much larger 
larger company and strategic partner, uh, industry leader, Orono, previously known as Arriva, which is a large nuclear and uranium mining company out of France. So we consummated that deal in early 2017, and Arriva, or now Orono, can earn up to 70% at what's called the Preston Project by spending a total of $8 million over a six-year period. So they've just finished a drill program earlier this year with results pending, and they are planning additional exploration programs over the next 12 months as well. You know, for France being a left-of-center country, more or less, they sure do lead Europe and the United States with regard to nuclear energy, clean energy. France is a perfect example of a developed country that's been able to generate lots of clean electricity. Over 70% of the grid is CO2-free from nuclear energy. It brought their electricity costs down, their emissions down. It's a perfect poster child, if you will, for the benefits of nuclear, especially for some of these developing countries. And again, we talk about the growth in demand globally in nuclear. It still very much is a growth story in parts of the world like China, like India, like the Middle East, places where they're building new nuclear reactors, large nuclear reactors that consume a lot of uranium on an annual basis. There's 56 reactors currently under construction, over 450 operating and and hundreds more in the pipeline, right? And so, you know, we don't really think about nuclear, hear about nuclear as much as a growth story in the Western world, but in parts of the world where billions of people are coming up potentially into the middle class, that's where nuclear is a growth story. They need a lot of electricity and they need clean electricity. Is that why, in your opinion, we've seen more interest in uranium when there's other factors involved that we've discussed before, as in the self-regulation of the supply and price of uranium and the cutback in production meant to increase that price? In particular in the U.S., right, if we look at what's happening right now in the USA where you have almost 20% of the country, one in five homes powered by nuclear, and you know, a large amount of the grid continue to power by nuclear going forward, the, the, the issue in the U.S. is that most of that fuel, most of that uranium is sourced internationally from non-domestic sources. The U.S. only produces less than 5% its annual consumption of uranium. So that's where you've seen this petition 232 and the uh, subsequent investigation that's underway to try to source more uranium domestically. Now, the issue, however, is that the price of the commodity, the price of uranium is still unsustainably low in the mid-20s. Most mines globally do not make money at $25, $26 uranium, where the current spot price is. The average global cost of production all ends over $40 a pound, and the price needed to incentivize new builds, new projects to come online is $60 a pound. So it's one thing to say, okay, yes, we want to source more uranium domestically, but these, these miners still need to be profitable, and they simply can't be at the current prices. A good example of why prices need to go higher to meet that current demand and growing demand, especially in the developing world, we're going to need to see that price move to bring new production online and even to keep current production online. And you talk about these recent supply cuts. That's a big, big talking point right now. We're in 2018 likely only going to be producing around 130 to 135 million pounds of uranium. Well, global demand this year is projected to be about 190 million pounds. So significant supply deficit there that'll have to be met by secondary supply. There's been a lot of talk of inventories of uranium out there. There's always a lot of inventory of uranium out there. A lot of governments do mandate it. How much of that inventory is mobile? How much of it can come into the spot market? And there's not a lot of it that can. So we're starting now to see upward pressure on the uranium price as a result of this. The supply cuts out of Cameco and out of Kazataprom, the two largest producers of uranium globally. But we're also now seeing new buyers coming into the market. We've seen this fund, Yellow Cake, just recently raised $200 million in London to buy 8.1 million pounds directly from Kazakhstan, the largest producer of uranium globally. They have an option to raise and buy $100 million more each year for the next nine years. Again, that's $100 million going forward each year, assuming they do that, that will be bought by them and not sold into the spot market. And you have large producers like Cameco that have guided that they're going to be going into the spot market and they're 
going to be buying material in the spot market and selling it into their long-term contracts. It's actually more profitable for them to do that than to produce from some of their large mines. They just shut down MacArthur River, which is the world's largest, richest uranium mine in the world. It's a relatively low-cost mine, and again, that just shows you how unsustainably low these prices are when they have to shut down mines in the lowest-cost quartile of the industry and actually go and buy material in the spot market. As we say, they're essentially doing a share buyback or a normal course issuer bid on the not on their the shares of the company, but on the commodity that they actually mine. So we're we're seeing a confluence of factors working together to, to drive higher uranium prices, and higher uranium prices translate to higher share prices for the uranium miners. Speaking of which, what can we look forward to with regard to Sky Harbor over the next 12 months? The big one on the near term is the drill program that's just started. So again, minimum 3,000 meters testing basement-hosted targets. We will have updates and results out over the coming week. You know, as an exploration company, that is the main catalyst. There is the exploration programs and drill programs planned by our partner companies as we talked about over on the west side of the basin as they're earning in 70% both Orono and Azincourt. So we have news out on our drilling and our results, but we'll also have news out on our partner companies' exploration programs. We are looking to bring in other partners on some of our other projects as we continue to execute on that prospect generator strategy. We have three other projects, Falcon Point, Yurchison, and Man Lake that we own 100% of that we're talking with other companies on right now. And And then in the new year, we are looking to put out or issue a maiden NI-43-101 resource estimate at our flagship MORE project. So once this current drill program is complete and we have the results back, we will then look uh, to put out a resource estimate, which will be a, a pretty significant milestone for the company. So lots of news and catalysts on the horizon to hopefully complement a rising tide in the uranium market. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, President and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Harry Barr, the Chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and NMTLF in the U.S. New Age Metals Incorporated is a mineral exploration company focused on the discovery, exploration, and development of Canada's largest primary platinum group metals, PGM deposit, the River Valley PGM project, located in the Sudbury region of Northern Ontario. The company also has a lithium division with five lithium projects, of which three are drill ready. The company's philosophy is to be a project generator explorer with the objective of optioning or joint venturing their projects with major and junior mining companies through to production. Harry, welcome back to the program. According to a recent news release, New H Metals has completed the Genesis PGM Polymetallic Technical Report. Management is actively seeking an option joint venture partner for the drill-ready road-accessible Alaskan project. Our company is focused on developing platinum group metals. To that end, we have 100% of North America's largest undeveloped primary platinum group metal deposit, which is our River Valley project near Sudbury, Ontario. We've worked in Alaska, and I've worked in Alaska for many years, since 1985, and I had the good fortune in 1985 to meet a gentleman by the name of Curtis Freeman, and he is one of Alaska's largest geological consulting companies. And through those years, Kurt has developed an extensive database, and we were able, our company, to sign a two-year binding letter of intent with Avalon Development, that's Curtis's company, and that allows us to basically look at his PGM, Platinum Group Metal, database that he has there. And and many Platinum Group Metals in Alaska, like Canada, come with base metals. So to that end, uh, he has a very exciting project in the sense that it's road accessible, it's certainly underexplored, very highly prospective project that has a set of many drill prospects on a palladium, platinum, nickel, copper property. Just as importantly, in Alaska, it is road accessible. There's a fair bit of work being done, but uh, Ellis has never been drilled yet. So I really don't know about the size of the project potentially, but I imagine that it's got a sizable footprint. 
the footprint in terms of size of our project is about 10,240 acres, which is quite a lot of land. More importantly, it's road accessible, which is important in Alaska. And just as importantly, there's been a lot of surface work done on it. And to give you an idea, we already know there's an outcrop that is mineralized, and it's around 850 meters long, or if you multiply that, just short of about 2,500 feet long. That's a long strike, and it has up to about 120 meters of uh, a true thickness in places. So, And it has very good grade. It has platinum group metals and nickel and copper. So all of that will come together, and that's basically called a polymetallic project. But it yet, to date, it has not been drilled. When I look at this company and when I look at you, Harry Barr, I look at someone who's in the real estate business, the process of acquiring land that's worthwhile that you can develop and flip it. Is that a fair analogy? Well, the junior mining company, you know, you can look at a a good junior as a sophisticated prospector, a little more sophisticated because we understand the stock market and how to raise funding and bring shareholders together for a common goal. So that makes us a little bit different. But we use what's become more I guess commonly known in the last few years, a prospector generator model. So we go out and we'll acquire a good mining prospect and then as quickly as we can, we'll spend our own money for a certain period of time and we'll develop to a certain point. But as quickly as we can, using the prospector generator model, we'll go out and find that option joint venture partner. And as you know, our company has, uh, New Age Metals has really two different objectives. One of them is to find platinum group metal deposits that often come with other metals like copper and nickel in North America. But we also have a lithium division and the lithium division has eight projects. I'm bringing it up today because we told our shareholders about a year ago that we we're putting together a great series of projects in Manitoba and near Winnipeg. Most of them are all road accessible. And we told our shareholders we we're going to go out and find a partner to help us finance it. And to that end, we've done that and we have quite an extensive program being fully funded by a third party this year. So that's what we're hoping to do here. We're going to do a program ourselves on the Genesis project this fall and it will continue to nail down some of these drill targets we have. little history behind it is this is a project that we had known about before. We had got involved in it to a certain point and we brought our very big company called Stillwater into being our partner on this. They're now called Sabanye Stillwater, but Stillwater is the only big, there's two mines in Stillwater, Montana that produce most of your platinum group metals in the United States to this day. And a a company from South Africa just took it over in the last couple of years and it's now called Sabanye Stillwater. But it's a very major platinum group metal producer, but it also has base metals with it. So that company was our partner and we really got to the point where we built it up on their money and we're ready to go drilling and Kurt was the geologist behind the scenes, Kurt of Avalon Development, the gentleman we've just done the deal with. The terrible times of 2008 and 9 came along and the company Stillwater just didn't go ahead. We were literally ready to drill the project. The properties fell back to Curtis Freeman and the ideas of the properties and essentially he's kind of kept that whole concept going up until we reintroduced ourselves this year and done a deal with him to number one tie up his database for the next two years to look at all the ideas he has for platinum group metals and base metals in Alaska and then number two we finally tied up the deal in Genesis so it's a property that was ready to be drilled quite a few years ago and for a host of reasons it didn't happen. The big company backed out of it and then Kurt basically signed a deal with us and we have the right to earn 100% of it. He'll have a royalty at the end of the day and then we can take this this project and, and find a partner just like we did with our lithium division. That's what we hope to do but at the same time we're going to spend another round of money this fall to do more field work to basically perfect the drill targets we have and to add more new ones to the project. Some of the companies in the junior space, they may just build a story on one particular project like this, and that's the whole company. This is not New Age Metals. No, we're diversified. you got to watch as a junior how well diversified you get. When you look at our holding costs on the Genesis property, it's virtually we've made a deal with Mr. Freeman to give him shares of our company. And I think something fair to him and fair to our company. It's not a lot. It's not a major percentage of the company. And two, if it goes to production, he would get a royalty. And it's a fair royalty. It's a very common royalty. I'm looking at the map of North America right now. and You have properties in Ontario and Manitoba and you have a big history in Alaska, and you've leveraged that. Yeah, this industry is about creating value by finding 
new discoveries of metal that become economic and eventually you can build a mine and that's our job for our shareholders is to go out and try and find something new and something that's exciting and why I like Genesis amongst other things is it's hard to get a property that has access. I mean we're very close uh, we're 75 road miles from the city of Valdez. The project has basically only about three kilometers from an all-season paved Richardson Highway and it has high capacity electric power. So these things are very difficult to find in a remote project in Alaska, which this is not. And it's a good size project. We think it could easily be a brand new district. The whole district is something that Kurt and our company, to a degree, have got in there and done the first round of exploration on it. So, And we know that there's a lot of mineralization. We've, a lot of assays have already been taken from the surface. So it's, it's a pretty exciting target. And, and I think it's something we could easily get a mid-sized junior company or a, a, even a major company to take a look at and help us develop this. What can we see for the rest of the year with New Age Metals? Well, lots of exciting things happening. Our big project, we just hired in the last month two engineering companies to help us complete the first economic study the project's ever seen. Again, for the listeners, we have the largest undeveloped primary platinum group metal deposit right in a key mining district, road access, power, all of that, less than 62 miles from an area where we ship our concentrate. I've been speaking with Harry Barr, the chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and NMTLF in the U.S. For more information, go to the company's website, newagemetals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silvercorp, training as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. The company owns 100% of the Dolly Varden Mines historic silver property. The current favorable price of silver has renewed investor interest in this most historic of the silver mines in northwestern British Columbia in Canada. The property is best considered an advanced exploration stage play with well-understood targets and I am a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silver Court. Hi, Ben. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. If you don't mind, please give us an overview of Dolly Varden Silver. Dolly Varden Silver Corporation has the historic Dolly Varden mine and the adjacent mines up in the Golden Triangle of northwestern British Columbia. You have significant drill results regarding the Dolly Varden project in the Golden Triangle. Let's talk about that. Yes, as we speak, there are two diamond drill rigs turning on the property. We just released the second batch of 10 drill holes with some excellent results. And there are another 20 holes that are currently in the stream of drill core logging and sampling, cutting, and then they'll be shipped off to the assay labs as well. So there is information flow to come on the property as well as what we just released. Is this what you expected? Yes, I expected some good values because we had originally drilled three holes in the Torbert East zone at the end of 2017. It was one of the new discoveries outside of the resource block model. Well, in that area is where the latest results show that we still have good hits in that area. We had about an eight meter intercept that was a high grade silver with a little bit of lead and zinc. What can we expect to see in the fall and for the rest of the year? There'll be another couple of releases that'll come periodically, probably another three or four releases, similar styles of releases of batches of information, right up until probably the first week of December. The drills will wound up in October. As you recall, it takes several weeks to do the physical handling of the core and get it off to the assay labs. But we'd expect assay data will be coming out to the market right up till the first week of December. Do we have a new resource estimate? Well, not quite certain. We're hoping to get one for the first quarter of next year, so first quarter of 2019. Like all the consultants that we have, you have to bring in an independent, qualified person for the writing of the resource estimate, and they have not yet done their site visit. So I've got to push them along to get their site visit to the project before the snows fall so that they can do their resource assessment work in the first quarter of next year. We're seeing some great attention to the Golden Triangle in British Columbia that we haven't seen in many years. It's quite a prolific area, and there's been decent response in the market lately. Why now as opposed to five or ten years ago? 
It often goes in waves in exploration. One of the reasons that you do see a change is that there's a new power line corridor that extends along the Stuart Cassier Highway. And that's the highway that is directly to the east side of the Golden Triangle. So any of the mining operations that start to develop in the area have an opportunity of splicing in for electrical power into grid that would allow them the capacity to have a large mine on on one of these projects. Going forward, what is the ultimate plan for the company? Are you going to develop this into a mine? Will it be a takeout candidate? I know what the history is of this particular management team. Why don't you give our audience a synopsis of where you see this going? Well, we do have some flexibility on how this project goes, but the most likely scenario is that the major silver producers will want us to do the early exploration that we are carrying on right now and increase the resource to a point where they will see that the project has been de-risked. They will step in, and as their strength is production more than exploration, then that's when they will bring their talents to bear on the project, and it is likely to be a takeover target. Let's review the share structure. The share structure of Dolly Varden Silver is similar to a lot of other companies that we've worked with because we've introduced several portfolio managers and high net worth individuals to the company. But as you know that the current management team got involved at the very end of 2016. So unlike a lot of companies that we've been working with before, management does not own as large a percentage of it, but the current owners of the company recognized our talent and they own shares in other companies that we've created. So we are certainly recognized for adding value and making money for a lot of the investors. So some of the investors that are involved in this group are Sprott Asset Management, Ingalls and Snyder in New York, Sprott Asset Management in Toronto. I believe the contrarian groups involved and more specifically is U.S. Global out of Texas. They are certainly very active in the silver space as far as investments go. Thanks again, Ben, for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more news when you have it. One of these days, Ellis, I'm going to have to get you on the ground and get your hiking boots on and get you into the field to see these projects. We'll make that happen, Ben. You're the one that can do it. <laughs> okay. I've been speaking with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silver Corp. Trading as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. Once again, I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silver Corp. And the company is a paid sponsor of this program. Find Dolly Varden on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation at the Daily Grill in Santa Monica, California with our biotech editor, Dr. Thomas Glenn and Anthony Cataldo, founder and director of GT Biopharma, which trades on the OTCQB as GTBP. That's GTBP. GT Biopharma uses proprietary platform technology which generates immuno-oncology biopharmaceutical drugs targeting cancers such as acute lymphocytic leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, acute myeloid leukemia, and multiple solid tumors. Anthony, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you. And Tom. Thank you very much. If you don't mind, Anthony, give us a background on your company. GT Biopharma is a biotech company that focuses on targeted immunotherapy, which is where I think all of this is ultimately going. And in that vein, there are several platform technologies that we were able to license that the technology was developed out of the University of Minnesota by Dr. Jeffrey Miller and by Dr. Daniel Valera. And Jeff Miller is known as kind of the guru, the epicenter of any NK technology, which I'll explain to you in a moment, and IL-15, interleukin-2 technologies. Those become important when you start matching them together, and I'll explain that to you as we go along. And it's another biotech opportunity that has a platform technology, which we'll have to define. Going forward, market cap right now is about $115 million, and it looks like we're going to be able to do the same thing that we did when I created a company called Iovance, which is at $1.6 in market cap now. And it looks like we're going to trend towards that same direction, but this is a bigger opportunity. Well, let's talk about that potential opportunity. You mentioned platform technology to the layman. What does that mean? Well, platform technologies are, they're rare. They're kind of like sports franchises where a franchise player, like a Kobe Bryant or a Tom Brady or 
Robin Yount, they come around once every 10 years. In the biotech world, most of the technology is geared towards a specific indication. It's geared towards one type of cancer, whether it's solid tumors or liquid tumors or whatever it happens to be. But it's held hostage to just that indication or just that cancer therapy. Platform technologies create opportunities to go into many different types of cancers. They can be relegated to just liquid tumors or solid tumors or both. In our case, our technology, our platform technology can spin out different product lines for solid and liquid tumors. Seattle Genetics, which is about an $8 billion market cap company, has a platform technology which is in the field of what's called ADCs, antibody drug conjugates. They're bispecific technologies, and we can go into greater detail later if you wish. So by platform technology, essentially, you have something, you've developed a product that you can license out to other companies that they can build their own technology on top of. Am I correct? Yes, you can do that, or you can create multiple products from your own platform technology. When you license out technologies from a platform technology, you have to be really careful because there's a certain specific protocol to the FDA. You would never want to license out part of your platform technology to a company that may not give it the type of attention and capital that you want that could cause a negative event going through the FDA because once you have a negative event, that would come back to our company. So you're very careful when you're licensing out technology. You you have to make sure it's going to the right parties and that you can stay involved with it to make sure it progresses in the right way. From what I understand, you're involved in oncology, cancer of the blood, as well as neurology, brain cancer, liquid tumors, tumors that are not liquid. I'm not the expert here. I'm going to turn to Tom, and Tom's got a question for you in that regard. Yeah, I was curious, regarding brain cancers or neurological diseases, how does this platform or this compound get across the blood-brain barrier? Yeah, the brain cancers are different. We have a neurological profile, and what we're trying to do now is they really don't mix oncology and neurology. We acquired those through a merger of a company that we did. There are several products that show some promise, but we're looking more towards partnering with those types of things. And going through the blood-brain barrier requires, you know, very small molecule drugs because the blood-brain barrier there is there for a reason, right? So you have to be extremely careful. And you really don't know if you can actually get through the blood-brain barrier until you go into the actual FDA testing. Even animal models don't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to accomplish that. So on our neurological product, We're really going to stand back on those for a while and let some of the other companies, which we are talking to other companies now, I'm not at liberty to say who, about doing that. Our focus right now is on what we do best, and that's the oncology profile. What does the potential revenue stream look like? Biotech's a little different. Initially, we're not measured by value on a revenue stream, even though the revenue stream is always in the back of the minds of the analyst and the, the institutional buyers. It's really more by the attainment an achievement of milestones. And so companies like ours go through a series of milestone achievements that give valuation. As an example, Kite and Juno, which are CAR-T companies, a lot of their valuation came up front just on their ability to get the technology into the clinic, into human trials, get through phase one, get through phase two, and mostly they never get to phase three because if they can accomplish in getting through phase two, there's a significant amount of value already made on that. Hence, Kite was bought for $12 billion a year ago, and Juno was acquired for $9 billion by Celgene. Kite was bought by Gilead. Juno was bought by Celgene for $9 billion. And I'm intimately familiar with those technologies because I originally had those technologies when I started IOVANCE. Well, I think success in the past is very important with regard to a biotech company or any public company. So let's take a look at your management team. I took a brief look at it before this interview and it's, it's quite impressive. You certainly have assembled a team that has had some success in the past. Sometimes I think I'm kind of like a stop clock. I'm right twice a day and wrong the other times. But in biotech, if you're right twice a day, that can be a really huge winner. When I put together our management team, it goes back to my experience with IOVANCE, where I created the company. It's now at a $1.6 billion market cap. And during that process, at some point in time, I always felt that you have to bring in a team, particularly a CEO, that can own the science. And as lucky as I've been in the biotech space, I'm not an MD or PhD. I mean, I obviously have a background in chemistry and business. But at some point, I felt you have to bring in the heavy hitters. And so I did that in IOVANCE, and I did it earlier in GT Biopharma. 
And what happened was I went out to get what I thought was the best of breed in oncology. One of the names I kept coming across was Dr. Raymond Urbanski. Ray was formerly chief medical officer at Pfizer, at Myelin, same CMO. He did a short spin at Mankind. So he had the right background. Here's a guy who put out major drugs for a major pharmaceutical company, but also had the experience of a small biotech company trying to progress forward, and that's very rare. And I was told at that time, like, look, you're never going to get anybody like Ray Urbanski. You're still a Bulletinburg company. We won't be much longer. We have applied for our NASDAQ uplisting, so we expect to be up and running on NASDAQ before the end of this calendar year. So I said, you're right. I'm not going to convince Ray Urbanski to come in as my CEO, but the technology will. And once he saw the data and what the trike technology did and our phase two product did, he came on board. And I think that's what you want. You want the technology to resonate more than the founder of the company. Can you give us any indication of how efficacious your products have been so far? We have one product, which is our ADC antibody drug conjugate, which is in phase two. So we know there's efficacy coming out because the data, we've already shown a couple of complete responses, which is highly unusual in in a phase one, phase two study. And we've shown also several objective responses. So we are definitely progressing on that. On the trike technology, which was highly sought after by everybody, all the big pharmas, because it's NK technology, natural killer cells, which is the next wave of technology is in that area, particularly in targeted immunotherapy, which is our sweet spot. So we know that that technology shows promise and efficacy for that. We look to be in the clinic within the next few weeks, actually for the trike technology, and I'll have a better answer for you there. But all of the in vivo, in vitro, all the animal testing, we already know the results. We know there's going to be some serious efficacy there. The challenge with the FDA is making sure you get to, in your phase one, your toxicity profile, it works, and we're fine there as well. And that you get to what's called MTD, maximum tolerated dose, because the FDA wants to know how much drug you can put into a patient that's not going to become problematic. And let's talk about the share structure again. Well, currently our stock is at $2.36. Even as a bulletin board company, we trade pretty decent volume. We're trading between 100,000 and 200,000 shares a day at that level. Once we get on the NASDAQ, that will certainly change the dynamics of our trading and increase liquidity as well because you get the institutional support in there. I have an institutional following because of what happened to me with Iovance. They're all sitting on the fence waiting for us to become a NASDAQ company, and then you'll see that happening. So we're in pretty good shape. Our capital structure is very clean. We have almost 52 million shares fully diluted in the company, and the float is about 28 million shares. We only have 1,964,448 warrants but they're at a price of $2 a warrant, exercise price. So you have to show stability. And because you want your markets to be dictated by the the milestones that you achieve, and you don't want to have a doorway open to where the stock has all kinds of spiral debt financing and things like that. We don't have that. We have very clean financing behind us. And how are you capitalized for all the research you have yet to do? Well, in this process, since 2014, when I started the company, we've raised about $20 million. That's all gone in... The majority of it has not gone to management. It's gone where it needs to go, and that is to the technology, to you know the clinical trials that we are currently under a phase two trial with one of the platforms, and the ongoing trials which are starting up in the next few weeks. So we have sufficient enough capital to get through that time. In the biotech world, once we get on the NASDAQ, we'll go for a more significant raise, but it'll be at NASDAQ prices of $4 or better. Look, a public biotech company is really two companies. It's a biotech company, and we have regulators for that called the FDA, and it's a public company, and we have regulators for that called the SEC. So we get double regulated. So I know about that. So you have to be careful. I like the idea of only speaking about things that have been accomplished as opposed to things that you might do this, you might do that. That doesn't mean anything to me, nor should it mean anybody to your market. So you want to provide a platform, and I don't mean in technology, a platform in a public company that shows that you're paying attention to the capital structure, you're paying attention to your product line, you're paying attention to the economic model. And I think we do a pretty good job. We have a really good solid team. 
to help us do that. The team will increase in size as we go. I see the same sort of trend happening to GT Biopharma that I did with IOVANCE, which is now off and running and one of the success stories. So we'll see how it goes. Now, we've had a lot of great success on this program exposing biotech and biopharm companies to our audience of individual and retail investors and fund managers, not just in the U.S., but globally. So what would you say to that potential audience for you? Why should they consider GT Biopharma in addition to or as opposed to other companies that they have an option of choosing on the market? Well, there's a lot of things that influence the value of a company. This week, on Monday, Affimed announced that they had a deal from Hoffman LaRoche slash Genentech. Genentech is owned by Hoffman LaRoche. It was a $5 billion deal. It's an investment based on milestones with an upfront payment of $96 million. There are only two companies on the planet Earth that have NK cell engagers. One is Affimed and the other is ours. Affimed has done a good job. Theirs is a bi-specific NK engager meaning it hits one CD receptor and it hits the tumor itself. And it works on for liquid tumors. I don't believe it works on solid tumors at all. And that's really good. That helps establish a valuation for us. The other company is us. And we have our platform technology, not just a specific technology, but a platform technology that is tri-specific or tetrike-specific, hitting multiple targets, and not only liquid tumors, but solid tumors as well. And once we get through the rigors of the FDA getting into our trike technology in our clinical trials which are soon to start. You're going to see a change in valuation for us because those are significant milestones. We also have our ADC platform, which is also in phase two right now. And we announced that we do have a joint deal with a big pharma company where we weren't allowed to name that company because we're trials right now. And that will happen once a certain trial ends and we're quite confident they wouldn't start up with us unless they felt there was something there. So we'll see what happens with that. So there's a lot of corporate developments happening to us now and going forward in the future. And there's also now the push for NK technology, which is what AFIMED has that validated the next wave of technology. There was a tremendous amount of excitement over CAR-T. Now I'm intimately familiar with CAR-T because when I started IOVANCE, we had the platform technology for the TIL therapy that's done very well. And we also had the option for the CAR-T technology that the NCI created through Dr. Steven Rosenberg. I had that option for nine months. At the time, I was just a pink sheet company, very small. I could only fund one of them, and CAR-T was a lot more money. It ended up being taken over nine months later by Kite Pharma, who sold that company for $12 billion. So I went from idiot to genius and then to idiot all in one sentence just now. But I knew CAR-T was going to resonate. But I think that CAR-T, because it's not a drug, there's a limited use for CAR-T, and it certainly has shown great valuation. But that valuation and that use is really because it's the most expensive thing you can do. It's about $750,000 to $1 million a patient. I felt that the next wave of technology needed to be more in the form of a small molecule drug. The trike technology that we have is the protein version of CAR-T, but using NK cells. And what Minnesota was able to do, and why Minnesota, everybody was trying to get the technology out of Minnesota. I got lucky again. Luck follows me around. And we managed to get that technology. And it's because that technology, the solution for NK cells was being able to target the NK cells. In the human body, the two most prolific cancer-killing cells that the immune system creates are T cells and NK cells. T cells are the soldiers. They do a job once they're directed into a specific way, and the immune system is extremely intelligent. NK cells are the generals, and they are more prolific. But an NK cell has to be treated with a lot of respect. They're so prolific, they do kill the cancer, but they would kill everything if you don't target them in a very specific way. What Minnesota was able to do was create a targeting modality as part of its platform that directs the NK cells to multiple CD receptors in different types of liquid tumors and solid tumors. What do you mean by CD receptors? Every form of cancer, every cell, whether it's liquid tumors or solid tumors, has these projections on the cells that are called receptors. Because we've been able to map so well the genomic structure of what's going on, they are now all identified in certain types of cancers with CD16, 
CD33 seemed to be present in a lot of liquid tumors, EPCAM CD133 in solid tumors, and so on and so forth. Our trike technology is well adapted to recognizing CD receptors, and what makes our trike technology, our NK technology, different from even Afimed, which got a huge deal recently, is the fact that we, in the middle of it, and this is what our patents are all about, we injected something called IL-15, interleukin-15. In and of itself, interleukin-15 is extremely dangerous if you don't use it right. But when you're able to capture it, put it in the center of a trike bullet in the form of a drug through a methodology called folding and a lot of other technical things that your audience probably wouldn't understand unless they're oncologists. Minnesota was able to use IL-15 as a catalyst inside the trike on multiple targets. And in our first trial, it's CD16, IL-15, CD133. Those are two receptors on lymphomas and leukemias. And they were able to put IL-15 in there with the IL-15 component does to the NK cell. NK cells before this advancement would only last three to six hours. So you would have to continuously dose somebody for a long period of time. What Minnesota's methodology and the patents are all about is by the use of IL-15 in the center of the trike, it's taken the life cycle of the NK cell to six weeks or better. Now you can create a drug that is actually usable and targeted. That is a breakthrough. So it not only are we targeting the NK cells, but we're extending the life cycle of natural killer cells because of our technology. And I'll finish up with this final question. What can we look forward to from the company during the next six months to a year? Well, look, our current market cap is about $115 million. When I was asked that same question being interviewed several years ago because of IOVANCE, they said, well, I was at about the same point, around $100 million. And I said, look, if I do a terrible job, when I say I, it's our team. It's Dr. Vance is not capable of doing a terrible job. But I'm saying if we did a terrible job, I would consider a $250 million market cap as a failure. I said that back at IOVANCE, the same thing. I said if we did at that time an average job, we'd be at about a half a billion dollars. And if we did a good job, we might be able to hit a billion dollars. Well, IOVANCE is now at $1.6 billion. We're at $100 million, and I'll say the same thing. If we do a bad job, we're probably at $500 million on this one because this is a much bigger market. If we do an average job, we're at a billion and a half to two billion. And if we do a great job, then I'm being interviewed from the boat. Well, Anthony Cataldo, the founder of GT Biopharma, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've been chatting with our biotech editor, Dr. Thomas Glenn and Anthony Cataldo, founder and director of GT Biopharma, trading on the OTCQB as GTBP. That's GTBP. Would you like more information on this company? Go to gtbiopharma.com or find their logo linking to them on our website, ellismartreport.com. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Triumph Gold Corp is a mineral exploration company currently focused on its 100% free gold mountain project in Canada's Yukon. This road-accessible property is located in the Dawson Range Gold Copper Belt, host to the Casino Copper Deposit, the Coffee Gold Deposit, and the Plaza Gold Prospect. Triumph Gold Corp has a leadership team with a collective history of exploration success as well as capital-raising ability. John, welcome back to the program. It's nice to speak with you again. Tell us about what's been going on in the 100% owned Blue Sky Zone. Thanks, Ellis. Since last time we spoke, we just commenced our exploration program for the 2018 season to follow up on last year's exploration success. Last year, we came up with four new uh, exploration ideas that were followed up on with drilling. And this year, we wanted to follow up on that success and prove the concept of what we came up with as well as explore new ideas on the property. As it relates to Blue Sky last year, we had a technical discovery that we were really excited about. We hit a porphyry zone around our already large resource. It confirmed a geological mineralized zone that was three and a half kilometers long. What we wanted to follow up was 
further define that and vector in on grade so we can show the market some confidence to the size and, and really the richness of this discovery. Well, I think the market has that confidence about Triumph, even before you've completely proved it out. Good news coming from the Yukon. Again, following up from last year, we hit one porphyry zone of 52 meters, and it was a gram of gold and 0.3% copper. And that, in a porphyry, would make it one of the richest porphyries in the whole Western Cordillera. What we were able to do this year was do follow-up on that, and we hit a, a fairly significant breccia zone outside of that called the Wow Breccia, where we hit over uh, 100 meters, a 1.33 gram gold equivalent. And then shortly thereafter, we came up with the first couple holes in this blue sky porphyry where we confirmed that same grade over multiple intercepts of over 200 meters of one gram gold and 0.3% copper. So we know we have an elephant by the tail and we're continuing to explore it. What sort of conversations have you been having, John, with companies such as Gold Corp, etc., without getting into any uh, confidentiality agreements, of course? We know, Ellis, we have two mining companies that are uh, our shareholders, in particular, uh, Gold Corp has 19% of the company, or 19.999% of the company, and Zinshin Mining out of China, they've got just under 10%. They're under CA. We have a few other companies that are under confidentiality agreements, so I really can't comment on any of those. There have been some major successes in the area regionally. What does that portend? Well, a lot of talk and a lot of excitement in the junior exploration business right now, particularly what's called the Golden Triangle in British Columbia. And the Golden Triangle is its a great promotional term, but it's really the whole Tatina Gold Belt that goes through British Columbia and up through the Yukon and into Alaska. So it is pretty much the same large block of rocks. And within that, you've had a few big discoveries that the market's really jumped on, in particular Abin and Golden Ridge. And I think our project mirrors really the success of Golden Ridge and the strategy mirrors what Abin has. And, and so Abin last year came out with what they said was a discovery hole, but they didn't get a lot of love in the market until this year. And that's really because you had the confirmation of that same success of last year. That's exactly what we have had this year at Triumph, where we had confirmation with grade and size to last year's expiration success. As it relates to Golden Ridge, Golden Ridge has come up with a fantastic porphyry in British Columbia. It's 0.3% copper and 3 grams gold in a porphyry rated surface. I think what we want to get across is that we've got something like that, but it is much richer with a gold content. We've pretty much got three times the gold content than those other ones. Do you think we're seeing a new gold rush between the Golden Triangle and the Yukon, perhaps? Something we haven't seen in over 100 to 150 years? That's a big number, I realize. What do you think? You're definitely seeing a gold rush in British Columbia with the juniors. I'd say the Yukon one is a little more mature than that. And why I say that is you're having all these juniors having success and their stocks are, are doing phenomenally well. Why I say the Yukon is more advanced than that is you look at who's in the Yukon versus who's in British Columbia, where in the last two years, Gold Corp is showing up with obviously the purchase of Kamenak resources for $520 million, their investment into us. And then you've seen Newmont take a big stake in the Yukon. You've seen Barrick show up in the Yukon. Coeur Lane Mining has shown up in the Yukon, and you're seeing physical presence of all the majors. And it's not just consultants for the majors, it's actually the companies. So that's the one thing I will say the Yukon is a little more mature, is that they're probably two years ahead of this British Columbia rush, per se. What's the next step for Triumph for the rest of the year and beyond? Well, we are just wrapping up our expiration seasonal program now. We should be finished by the end of September. We've come up with our first two sets of results, primarily the wow breccia that I discussed earlier and the initials from the blue sky zone. We have got a number of results to come through, probably right through to the end of November, because as drilling goes on, it, it does take a couple of months to get these results. And we're doing a lot more work than just drilling. Let's talk about the share structure. We have incredible shareholders, and I thank them every time I see them. Go out of my way to thank them. We have Gold Corp, obviously, having 18.99%. Zinshin that I mentioned, that's got 10%. Also, Gold 2000 out of Zurich, who've been so great to work with. They have 10%. Palisades Capital has been phenomenal, and they've got about 17.5%. And a couple other funds. If we had to put it together, we're probably about 60% institutional and held by other mining companies. And long-term shareholders that still we communicate with every day. So I would say we've got a good 70% of well-held supportive shareholders. And again, I, I just can't thank them enough for the patience and the perseverance and the assistance. I've been speaking with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. 
You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They've paid us for the proof. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.